0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> we are joining with our Ventura campus this morning in the sermon. Let's let them know that we love them, feel so connected to them. And let's open to the book of 1 John. Just today, and then one more teaching in the book of 1 John. We're in chapter 5. We're looking at verses 13 through 15. We endeavored to do so last week, but we only got through verse 13. And uh, that's okay, you know, that's how it goes. So today, Lord willing, we'll cover verses 14 and 15. The title of this message is Assurance and Confidence in Christ. But this is part two, because we didn't finish last week. We'll be starting the book of Revelation in three weeks, on September 7th, we'll be starting the book of Revelation. That'll be fun. Until then, here's our text, First John chapter 5. Let's read verses 13 through 15 and pray. John writes and says in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Got that last week. Now for this week, verse 14. And this is a confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we ask that you would please anoint me to teach it and preach it in a way that is faithful and fruitful. Faithful to your word, faithful to your character and your purposes and fruitful for your cause and the furtherance of the gospel and the building up of the church. We pray that you would impart great faith to us as a church, that we would pray great prayers and confidence and enjoy your glorious work in our midst. And so, Lord, make us men and women of prayer as your word says we ought to be and help us to understand and to act in accordance with these things, please, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the thing that stands out about this text to me is that it makes some real bold assertions about prayer, bold claims about prayer, saying that we ought to be confident in prayer, that God hears the believer when he or she prays. And this is addressed to the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, that God hears us. And that if we ask anything, we have that for which we asked. And it says when we have, it's in the, it's in the present tense. It means we, we already have it. We're, we're praying and we're asking and God is already answering. These are bold claims about prayer. God hears us. God answers our prayer with the affirmative. We already have that for which we've asked. And John is getting these bold claims from Jesus. John was obviously fond of Jesus and repeated his concepts and words quite frequently in his epistle. And Jesus had said, as recorded in the gospel of John, chapter 15, verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Jesus was even more bold than John you abide in me and my word abides and you ask whatever you want and it will be done for you well that's exciting stuff about prayer but i gotta be honest that has not nor is always my experience with prayer for many of us it seems as though life is often full of unanswered prayers Yet these bold assertions of scripture are not what we experience on a day-to-day basis. And yet Jesus taught us in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, that we ought to pray at all times and not lose heart. It can be easy to lose heart when prayers seem to go unanswered consecutively, sometimes for years on end. I can remember when this first Became real to me, this disappointment with prayer. It was when I was a little kid in the early elementary school age. And uh, I went to the school right across the street here, Main School. That's where I went to school. I was born in a house right just adjacent to that, a block from this church. And when I was going to that school, they had every year something called the bike rodeo. Anybody ever have this? No, you never had that. Stupidest <laughs> thing in the world. You did? Okay. <laughs> all right, cool. You had the bike rodeo. So what it was, was all the kids would bring their bikes to school. And they would set up a little safety course, you know what I mean? Like how not to get hit by a car on the way to school and stuff like that. And there'd be cones and examples and stop signs and all this stuff. And what it really was, was an opportunity for the kids with the coolest bikes to be awesome that day. That's what it really was. I'm sure that the administration meant well. We'll teach them safety. Really, it taught us pride. And uh, when I was growing up, my parents didn't have much money in those early years, and My bike, honestly, my mom and dad are here, I'm I'm sorry, but my bike was not a source of pride at that time. (laughs) This was the late 70s, and I had a Huffy. Anybody old enough to remember the lameness of a Huffy? (laughs) I had a Huffy. The cool kids had red lines, right? Do you remember red lines? And mongoose, remember mongoose? These were like BMX bikes, right? And the, the cool kids had a mongoose or a red line and they were like doing all these jumps and tabletops and crossing it up. I had a Huffy with a banana seat. <laughs> a banana seat. Some of you are young and you're like, dude, those are killer, bro. Banana-. That's because you're young enough to be retro. Okay, if you lived through it, it wasn't cool. I lived through the Huffy banana seat phase. And because I'd been through a few bike rodeos, I knew what it was. I knew I was going to show up and my bike was going to be lame and there's going to be other kids who had awesome bikes. And I was a Christian. And so I said, here's what I will do. I will ask God and he will give me a better bike (laughs) and he will do it by morning. (laughs) I had asked dad, I had asked mom. They let me down. They weren't getting the new bike. I had my eye on one. So I said, I will ask God. And it's the first time that I can remember, other than praying for salvation, that I prayed in earnest, that I prayed with importunity. It was the first time I remember praying all night. And I was literally up all night praying. And I was convinced, I'm telling you, this is not, I'm not making this up. I was convinced that I would open the front door in the morning And there would be a new, cool bike on the porch. Convinced, full of faith. God, you can do anything. Do this thing. And I prayed in earnest. I prayed all night. And as you could probably guess, I opened the front door, nada. And so I went to school that day with my huffy with a banana seat. And a, a childish, though real, Disappointment with prayer and with God. Childish, but real. Disappointment with prayer and with God. And some real internal conflict with what I had heard the Bible taught about prayer. Now that I'm a man, some of my prayers are not as childish. They're They're man prayers. And my disappointments are man-sized disappointments. And yet the text beckons us to have confidence in prayer before God. That's really the whole point of the text is to encourage the believer, the follower in Jesus, to have confident joy in bringing our requests to God and to have expectant faith. And yet our experience seems to be contrary. What is going on here? Why does it seem that so many prayers go unanswered? Why is it so difficult early in life, later in life, to have the sort of confidence pictured in this text. Well, we'll get to the concept of confidence in a moment, but here's what we have to realize as we endeavor to explore this. We cannot possibly have confidence in prayer until we understand the condition in prayer. We cannot have confidence, as the text beckons us, until we have until we understand the condition in prayer as revealed in the text. Verse 14 again says this, this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will. Okay, this seems like an easy out. There's the condition. This is a confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, we have that thing. That is the biblical condition in prayer. That is the biblical caveat for prayer. If we ask anything according to his will. Now, let's be honest. Let's not merely be pious. Let's be honest. That seems a little bit unfair. God is saying in scripture, you can have anything that you want in prayer, anything you wish, as long as it's what I want. That's exactly right. That is what the text says. We can have anything that we ask for. Jesus said, ask for whatever you wish as long as it is what God wants. Is that fair? No. Is fairness the issue? No. Let us think about it this way was the cross of Jesus Christ fair? Was it fair that the innocent one, that the righteous one, that the holy one, the blameless, perfect son of God would die in our place for our wickedness, for our sins, for our rebellion? Was that an act of fairness from God? Not by any means. The cross wasn't fair. But was the cross right? Yes. Fairness is not the issue. Righteousness, what is right, is the salient issue. The cross was not fair. The exchange of his righteous life for our sinful lives, not fair. But was it right? Absolutely. What does that teach us? This is important to get. What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us, number one, that God is not always fair. Okay, fair is a pagan godless concept. Fair is not what you want from God. Understand that? Fair means you get what you deserve. That is not what you want from God. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what we want from God. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. That's what we want from God. We want God to be merciful and gracious, not fair. One of the most valuable lessons you can teach your kids early on is that life isn't fair. And neither is God. But what the cross also teaches us, in addition to the fact that God isn't fair, is that God is good and God is loving and God is right even when things seem so wrong. It was a dark day, the day that Christ was nailed to the cross. In fact, the sun went out. It was difficult times as the disciples left Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus with their heads hanging low. It was a dark few days when the stone was rolled in front of the tomb and there he lay in darkness. But with the cross and the resurrection, teach us. God isn't fair. He's gracious and merciful. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. And he is good and he is loving and he is right all the time. That is what the cross teaches us. And God's intention in this text of beckoning us to prayer is not to be fair, according to our assumptions, but to show himself through faithful prayer to be good, loving, and righteous, God's intention in inviting us to prayer is not to show himself to be fair but to prove himself to be good and loving and right and righteous in all that he does. And we must get this. For his own glory. God's primary concern is not my glory. God's primary concern is his glory. God was not overly concerned that I had a huffy and not a mongoose. God's primary concern is his glory and also our good. These things were met and lived out, fleshed out, experienced in the hard work of prayer. Think about it this way. When you are a parent, how many parents are here? Raise your hand. Oh, that's a lot of parents. When you are a parent, compared to your kids, without a doubt, you are all-knowing, all-wise, and always right. Can I get an amen from the parents? (laughs) When you are a parent, I just saw a dad give the side eye to his kids sitting next to him. (laughs) Ah, That was great. I won't reveal who it is. When you are a parent, you are all wise, all knowing, and all right all the time. When your kids become teenagers, they begin to take exception with these assumptions. Instead of being all knowing, now it's, dad doesn't know anything, literally nothing. Nobody on earth can be dumber than dad. Instead of being all wise, now it's mom doesn't get it. She doesn't even get it. She doesn't understand. She can't possibly comprehend what it means that he didn't text me. And Instead of always being right, you Are wrong all the time, and you are certainly not fair. And then, thank you, Jesus, the children mature. And this wonderful thing happens, thank you, Jesus, where they begin to realize Dad really did know everything. He really was all wise, he was always right. Well, not completely. But we do see a change, don't we, when maturity happens. Hopefully, when we get out of those adolescent years, we begin to see, well, you know, dad knew more than I thought. Dad understood more than I did. Dad got it right more often than I gave him credit for. In our maturity, there's a transition, especially when we become moms and dads. You know what this text is calling us to? Maturity. It's calling us to be mature in our relationship to God as followers of Jesus Christ. This text is calling us, as the whole book has been, to maturity in Jesus Christ. And maturity, I don't know how to say that word, mature, mature, it's stupid. (laughs) Maturity (laughs) gets this. Here's what maturity and following God gets. It gets that God is all-knowing, that God is all-wise, that God is always right, and God is love. There are times where we are and we act like spiritual adolescents, spiritual teenagers. Where we question these things and we struggle with these things. We get that. But the the text is beckoning us towards something more wonderful. mature Christian faith. Realizes, recognizes, functions according to the fact that God is all knowing, all wise, always right, and that God is love. So that the mature believer comes to realize through difficult times, through trial and travail, comes to realize that the condition in prayer of praying according to God's will is not a disappointment but it in itself is the source of confident joy. Why? Because God is all-knowing. His will's got to be right on. He's all-wise. His will's got to be the right way. He's always right. And He is love. And He deals with us according to love. So the condition, according to his will, is not a cop-out. It is a wonderful extension of God's love for us that brings to the life of the mature believer who will submit his or herself to this confident joy to the child of God, the teenager of God, and the mature Christian. Maturity in faith gets this. It is not that God is not answering my prayers that is the problem it is that I am so often praying amiss that is the problem. Okay, here's where some real honesty comes along. It's not that God is not answering my prayers. It's that I am often praying amiss. I am often insisting in prayer, God, my will be done. Rather than submitting in prayer, God, thy will be done. That's the problem. That was the issue with the unanswered prayer of the huffy. I am so often insisting my will be done rather than submitting to God and saying his will be done. Now, Jesus taught us to pray, right? The Lord's Prayer, it's called. Jesus taught us to pray. And it's a prayer that you can say, but I think it's well thought of as an outline for prayer that this is the shape and the form that our prayer life is supposed to take. Jesus taught us to pray this way. Our Father, there's a relational concept, right? We, We approach God as loving Father, as his children, expecting good things from him. Our Father, who art in heaven. Okay, there's the humbling aspect of prayer. God, you are God in heaven. I am here on earth. Our loving Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, you're holy. I'm, I'm not holy intrinsically. You, God, are holy. You're good. You're righteous. You're just. All those things. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That is how our Lord taught us to pray. There's all sorts of components there, but we're narrowing in on this. Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done. And every good prayer after that is a reverberation, an echo, an imitation of that. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus taught us to pray and told us beforehand that praying is coming to God and saying, God, not my will be done, your will be done. And then Jesus exemplified it in the most profound way in the garden of Gethsemane. He didn't only teach us how to pray, he showed us how to pray because as Jesus in the garden faced the reality of the cross and the weight of the sins of the world being poured upon him, he who knew no sin, becoming sin on our behalf, Jesus in facing the horror of that reality was sweating blood, was in great distress, kneeling down and three times he prayed to the father, father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from before me. Honest about how he felt. I don't want to take on in this moment the sins of the world the horror of the cross, the separation from you, the forsaking of the Father, the pain of it all. If there's any other way, God, three times Jesus prayed that. If there's any other way that they might be saved. And then he practiced what he preached and said, nevertheless, thy will be done. Our Lord taught us to pray And our Lord showed us what true prayer looks like. But that surrendering of will, even for our Lord Jesus, who is righteous and without sin, that surrendering of his will was still a struggle in Gethsemane. And life is full of proverbial Gethsemanes. Those moments where we're facing what is hard to face, What we may not want to face, what seems overwhelming, what is certainly unfair. The deep places of very real pain. But our Lord showed us how to pray in those moments. It's the prayer of surrender Thy will be done. You see, surrender is an admission of who knows better. Thy will be done, says God. You are all wise. You are good. You're always right. And you're always loving. Your will be done. The alternative insists that we know and that we're right and we're good. The battle of the wills. Your will versus God's will. Happens just about every day, doesn't it? Surrender is the mature Christian saying, God, you're right. You know everything. You alone are good. It's the question of who is God? Our prayer lives reveal to us whom we believe to be God, whom we believe to be Lord. Ourselves. Or him. You see, the truth of what Christ taught us and what Christ showed to us and what the text is saying to us is that God, in his love, has not been ignoring our prayers. He doesn't ignore the cries of his children, he hears us, the text says. He hasn't been ignoring our prayers, but he has been, get this, he has been answering them in unexpected ways. God has been answering our prayers in unexpected, wise, and loving ways. This is important. This is gonna change everything. There are at least three ways that God answers our prayers in unexpected ways, okay? Three ways in which our prayers are answered in unexpected ways. The first way is a no answer. (laughs) You get that one, right? It's not theologically correct to say that the Christian's prayer goes unanswered. That isn't theologically correct. Scripture doesn't portray that. It is theologically correct to say sometimes God says no. Evidence by Jesus in Gethsemane. There's all sorts of examples. I'm sure you can think of many. The hafi was one for me. Sometimes God who is all wise, all knowing and all right and love. Says no. Jesus prayed three times. If there's any way to save humanity other than the cross, and the Father said no. She said oftentimes we take that as as a non answer. It wasn't a non answer, it was a no answer. Now, those are difficult because if we didn't want it, we wouldn't have prayed it. We're praying it because we want it, we want that person healed. We want that relationship restored. We want those finances bolstered. We want that thing dealt with. Whatever it is, we come to God with desperate pleads, man-sized prayers. And sometimes God in his wisdom, in his love, in his knowledge, in his infinite sovereign goodness says no, just like we say no to the toddlers, Right? Toddlers will walk up to a barbecue that's 400 degrees. <laughs> and dad who knows everything is all wise and always right and loving says, no. And compared to God, we are toddlers chasing after hot barbecues. The mature Christian learns to respect honor, and appreciate no. The toddler grows up, though frustrated that she couldn't grab the legs of the steaming hot barbecue because they were eye level. She grows up to realize, I'm so thankful that I had a dad who didn't let me grab that which would hurt me. Some Christians need to grow up when God says no. The other unexpected answer Is an alternative answer. Remember that Paul prayed several times that his thorn in the flesh should be removed from the epistles of the New Testament. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. We can speculate. Scripture doesn't tell us. But he had some ailment or some relational condition that caused a whole lot of pain and difficulty and weakness in his life. And he prayed that Jesus would take it away on multiple occasions. And Christ said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It wasn't a no answer. It was an alternative answer. You want me to just remove this circumstance, but rather I'm going to give you grace to take you through it rather than deliver you from it. That takes faith. Because what we want is just a thing to be gone, a thing to be dealt with. But what God so often does is give us grace that sustains. There's all sorts of ways in which we receive alternative answers. It's not a non-answer. It wasn't a no answer. God, deal with my thorn. I'll deal with your thorn. Here's more grace. And the third way in which our prayers are answered in unexpected ways is a better answer. Oh, I like this one. A better answer. Remember Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus and Lazarus died. And they sent a letter to Jesus who was a few villages away saying, Jesus, come soon. Before he died, come soon. The one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. That was a prayer, right? Our brother, our family member is sick. Jesus, come and do something about it. And then it says there in the book of John, so Jesus stayed where he was a few days longer. Man, if ever there was a frustrating text. Here's these girls, her brother's dying. They love their brother. They're desperate for divine intervention. They appeal to Jesus and he does nothing. They wanted him to come. He stayed where he was. Four days later, Jesus comes moseying into town and Lazarus is dead and he's been in the grave now a few days. And you know the story. Jesus told the people to roll away the stone and he said, Lazarus, come forth. He had to say his name, otherwise every dead Jew in Israel would have risen. (laughs) Lazarus, come forth. And you know the story. Lazarus is resurrected from the dead. Oh my gosh. You see, sometimes in prayer, we aim too low. They wanted a healing, Jesus wanted to give them a resurrection. Sometimes, what appears to be a no answer is a better thing from our Heavenly Father. Hold on, just hold on, it might take a little time. Jesus tarried where he was for a few days. When he died, it felt as though all was lost. But then Jesus came and gave those who were just expecting a healing or some relief or comfort a resurrection. Sometimes there's things in our lives that God just wants to resurrect. We need to come to him in prayer and in confidence. But you see what all of these people had to do was surrender to the Father's will. Jesus in Gethsemane, Paul with the thorn, Martha and Mary with their sick brother. Every one of them had to surrender or at least resign to the will of God. And all of them learned that the will of God was better than their will. Did they not all learn that? They all learned by persevering in prayer that God's will was better than their own. You see, prayer was proving God to be good. Prayer was proving God to be right. Prayer was proving God to be loving. Their prayers were not unanswered. They were lovingly and wisely redirected. It involved some pain. It involved some pain. Gethsemane, the cross, some real pain. The thorn in the flesh, some real pain. The loss of their brother, some real pain it involves some real pain, but only in prayer did they begin to discover the truth of all of our favorite verse romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose It was only in pain and prayer that that was ever experienced, and yet even then with those Wonderful answers. There are times where it very much seems the case that our prayers are just plain going unanswered. I've been praying for her a long time. I've been praying for that teenager for a long time. I've been praying for healing for a long time. I've been praying for deliverance for a long time. I've been praying for revival for a long time. Sometimes it just seems that they're going unanswered. What is going on? Well, sometimes it's warfare. Sometimes it's will change. That's why we're called to persevere in prayer. Sometimes it's warfare. Sometimes it's will change. Remember in Daniel chapter ten, Daniel was praying to God, seeking insight about what would be the uh, the future condition of the Jews, and he's praying and fasting and weeping and crying out to God for twenty one days. And finally, after 21 days, a messenger angel appears and says, Daniel, I'm here to give you the answer. And he says the most astounding thing. You can put the verses up there. He says the most astounding thing. He says to Daniel, Daniel, from the moment you begin to pray, your prayer was heard and I was sent. God hears our prayers. But he says, the prince of Persia detained me. Spiritual warfare. We're talking about an angel in battle with a demonic entity. And then he says, and Michael the archangel came and saved me. This is crazy stuff. And he says, and now I'm here to give you understanding. From the moment, Daniel, you begin to pray, your father in heaven heard you. And he sent me as an answer, a response to prayer. But sometimes, Daniel, there's spiritual warfare. Sometimes, Daniel, there's more going on than you're able to see. Sometimes, Daniel, there's more happening in the very real spiritual realm than you could ever comprehend. And so all the time, Daniel, persevere in prayer. Luke 18.1, Jesus taught that men ought to pray always and not lose heart. Why does sometimes it seems that the prayer is going unanswered? Sometimes it's warfare and we need to persevere in prayer. Pray with importunity. Continue asking, seeking, knocking, Luke chapter 11. But sometimes it's will change. Sometimes, honestly, often maybe in my life, I'm praying the wrong thing because who knows God's will? I'm praying the wrong thing. So sometimes the delay is will change. Listen, you're praying the wrong thing, not a problem, keep praying. Because as long as we're praying, God has opportunity to be working in our hearts and minds to conform us to his will, right? James chapter four says this, you have not because you ask not, right? There's certain things that we don't have because we didn't pray for them. But then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures, so sometimes what's happening in prayer is not so much warfare as will change. God is just working on our will. And for some of you, it may be quick. You're praying a selfish prayer. It's not God's will for you and his wisdom and his goodness and his righteousness and his love. He knows that and he's working on your will to be conformed to his will. For some of you, you, just, you get that. For others of us, man, it could take a long time. The remedy for both big battles and wrong motives Is perseverance in prayer. What the text is calling us to is confident perseverance in prayer. In persistent prayer, wars are won and wills are changed. The wonderful, comforting, glorious truth about prayer is that it does not change God's will, it changes our will. And that's good news. I'll say this. This, I will say this. Prayer is not a means by which we accomplish our will or get God to accomplish our will, but rather a means by which we are informed of, formed by, and learn to function according to God's will. Prayer is not a means by which we get our will accomplished, but rather a way in which we are conformed and begin to live according to the will of God. Okay, well, here's what the smart person is thinking right now. But if all we're going to pray is God's will, and God is going to do his will, why even bother praying? If all we're doing is eventually reverberating God's will back to him, why even bother to pray? Well, in that is the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Okay, there's some real, genuine, okay, mystery there. That God is sovereign and man is responsible. Both of those pillars exist in Scripture, and you cannot get rid of one or the other. How are they reconciled? They're not in our puny little minds. Therefore, it is a mystery of the working of God that He's sovereign and yet we're responsible. He's working according to his will and yet we have a responsibility, a calling, a beckoning, an invitation to pray. That's the way it is. I don't, I don't know why it is that way but I, I take a little guess A part of it, part of why we pray even though we're just praying God's will eventually, ultimately, is because God loves us. It's because God loves us. And he loves us enough to change our minds on certain things. And he loves us enough to keep calling us back to the throne of grace. Because communication is the stuff of relationship. And what we have been saved into is a relationship with the Father. A relationship with the living God who hears and speaks and answers. And so God, even in the mystery of Divine responsibility, excuse me, divine sovereignty and human responsibility says, my child, continue to come to me in prayer even when you don't get it. And the other glorious truth is this. Why pray if it's just God's will? Well, here's the deal. In his sovereignty, God has chosen to work through people rather than independent of people. This does not mitigate God's responsibility It is a loving God's sovereignty. It is a loving expression of his sovereignty. In his loving sovereignty, God has chosen throughout history so often to work through people rather than independent of people. And so God says, come to me and pray my will. And what you ask according to my will will be given to you. The flip side of that coin must be there's certain good things God has for us that we never ask for, and hence we never receive. So, prayer is a glorious privilege, a profound responsibility. God has chosen to work through you rather than independent of you. You do not have because you do not ask the frustration i think in prayer comes for me when most of my prayers are again my will be done when i'm just ignoring the outline jesus gave me of thy will be done when i'm confused about whose will is right and who's really in control to be a follower of jesus is to turn toward and ever more be turning toward a life of thy will be done, God. Thy will be done. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And I think the frustration is my will be done. I mean, think about how we come to God in prayer. For me, it's usually, Lord, here's what I want. And here's what I want you to do. And here's the outcome that I desire. It is not often enough, often enough, Hey, God, what do you want? Hey, God, what do you want to do? Hey, God, what is your desired outcome? So much of our prayer life is egocentric rather than theocentric. Me-centered, not God-centered. We get stuck, we get frustrated, and my will be done. It's a glorious gift to be able to surrender to God and say, thy will be done. So therefore, learning to pray the will of God may be the most important thing we ever do. But who knows God's will? Look at all these single people sitting over here. The biggest thing you're wondering is, who's my chick? Who's my guy? Who am I going to marry? Who knows God's will? Well, God's will is discerned through God's word and God's spirit. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. God's will is made really plain in so many ways in God's word. First Thessalonians, this is God's word for you that you abstain from sexual immorality. Oh, pretty clear. I don't have to ask, should I sleep with this guy? Should I sleep with this girl? Should I commit adultery? Should I look at pornography? Don't even have to ask. God's will is revealed in his word. This is God's will for you that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will for you that you rejoice always and give thanks. I don't even have to ask if I should be grateful for the life that God has given me and what he's doing. I should just begin to act according to that. And then all this minutia about behavioral stuff, God's will is revealed in God's word. Listen, it becomes much less ambiguous for the man or woman who frequents scripture. It really does. It really, really does. But if you don't frequent scripture, then everything is a question and everything is up for debate and everything is unknown. Read your Bible. Where God's will is not only discerned through God's word, God's will is discerned through God's spirit. Because it doesn't necessarily say in the Bible, you should marry Julia. She's not in there. (laughs) But God cares about that. And his spirit wants to lead you in important life decisions. He really, really does. He really, really does. He cares about where you work, what you do, who your friends are, who your spouse is, how good the surf is. He really cares about these things. And so Jesus said in John 14 and 16, the Holy Spirit, the help, excuse me, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will guide you into all truth. That's a glorious promise, but here's what it requires. It requires probably for me a little less of going to God saying, here's what I want. Here's the outcome I desire. Here's how I want to see it go. And a little more of me going to him saying, God, what do you want? What's your desired outcome? How should this go? His promise is that he'll lead us by his word and by his spirit. It's important that the Christian learns to discern what God desires and what God despises with the help of the word and the help of the spirit. The question is not, this is never the question. The question is not whether or not God wants to reveal his will to us. He does. The real question is whether or not we want to do his will when he does. Are we willing to do it? Who's really in control here? When it comes to God's will, the Christian needs to desire it through faith in God, who is good and all-knowing and all-wise and loving, needs to discern it by the help of God in the Holy Scriptures and with the Holy Spirit, and then needs to do it. With the help of the Holy Spirit in surrender. Prayer is a means by which our desires, our evaluations, and actions are redirected toward God. And that's what the text is talking about. And this is the confidence we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, we have that thing. And that, my brothers and sisters, is not a cop-out. It's not a disappointment. It is a glorious, loving work of our sovereign Father, and it should be rejoiced in. Amen? Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you, Jesus, for the access you've given us to the Father through the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that now, because you... As we've repented of our sins and put our faith in you, we've removed the barrier so that we can with confidence approach the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And Lord, if my brothers and sisters are anything like me, they're in desperate need of lots of mercy and lots of grace. Thank you for being an unfair God who instead is merciful and gracious. Work your mercy and your grace in our lives. And we would say, as the apostles and disciples said, teach us to pray. Deliver us, Lord, from my will be done. And train our hearts and our minds to always be going toward thy will be done. Help us with that, Lord, right now today and the stuff we're struggling with and the stuff we want and the stuff we're excited about and the stuff we're afraid of. Help us today, Lord to discern, desire, and do your will. Please, Lord, help your people.